1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So I, I, want, I, want, you, I want you to allow me just for a moment to be funny, okay? Just a little bit funny at the beginning. I don't even know if it's funny. I don't write jokes, okay? But I'm, I've been reflecting on these verses this week and many other verses. So for the last six Sundays during Epiphany, we have been considering the question of identity or else questions of our, our identity in Christ that we see that come up in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians that Paul addresses in many ways. And we have only scratched the surface of what Paul is saying in those first two chapters, okay? So here's the joke. Here's the joke. Paul begins chapter 3, our New Testament lesson this morning, uh, and he says everything that we've considered is milk for babies. It's milk for babies. Fleshly people who are not yet ready to sit down at a table and eat a full meal. That's, that's, really? Is that what we've been doing for the last five weeks? This is baby food for us? So this identity series isn't really deep. It's not supposed to be deep. It's supposed to be milk for babies. And I laugh at this. This is a joke. It's not a funny joke, but it's a joke. We, like the Corinthians, are not ready fully to contemplate our union with Christ. In other words, we don't really get it fully. Uh, and, and everything that it confers onto us. Why? That's the question that I kind of want to explore here this morning. Well, it's because we are people who are torn apart by bickering, as we've seen uh, in the first two chapters, who argue and divide over baptism, or else who think we're smart because we associate ourselves with smart people, or else the right denomination, or whatever, who think uh, we're better than our neighbor, in other words. In other words, we're not spiritual. This is how 1 Corinthians 3 begins. We're not spiritual. We're fleshly. We are merely human, the Apostle Paul says. So he gives us baby food. All right? So I need some more baby food so I can really understand why I'm so fleshly. So this Sunday and next Sunday, I want to begin to try to tie a bow on this identity series. So we have two more Sundays in the season of Epiphany. Uh, this is the sixth Sunday, and next Sunday is the seventh Sunday, uh, or else Transf Transfiguration Sunday. So I'm going to try to, in some ways, and I don't think I'm doing this well, but we're going to try to bring all of this together. So here at the start of our lesson for 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we remember that we don't need grown-up food. Hear this. We don't need grown-up food. We need baby food most of the time, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip this idea on its head just a little bit. If I could summarize all of the books and all of the big ideas that address our big identity questions, it would be this. Remember your baptism, 
Remember your baptism, Christian. We don't need to understand our identity. We need to look at Jesus. This is what baptism is all about. We don't need to understand sophisticated sacramental theology or else church history. We don't have to understand it all. We need to remember our baptism. We don't need to become Anglicans. We need to look at the cross of Jesus. This is what we need. We don't need really great public speakers, thanks be to God. We don't need that. We need the Holy Spirit to make God's word come alive in our hearts by faith. That's what we need. That's what we need. We need this baby food that the Apostle Paul has been given us. We need to remember our baptism. Everything, in other words, everything is yours in Christ at the beginning. It is all yours. You have everything that you need from the start. So those who have been in our foundations um, recently have heard this quote, and they heard it this week, and I'm going to bring it to everyone else here this morning. This is from Ben Myers speaking about baptism. A person does not start with baptism. They don't start with baptism and then advance to higher mysteries. In baptism, each believer already possesses the faith in its fullness. The whole of life is encompassed in the mystery of baptism, dying with Christ and rising with him through the Spirit to the glory of God. In many ways, this summarizes Paul's admonitions in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. That is how, Ben Meyer says, the Christian life begins. And to seek to move beyond that beginning is really to regress. You're not improving if you want to get beyond your baptism. In discipleship, the one who makes the most progress is the one who remains at the beginning. We need baby food. You don't have to become a grown-up, in other words. If you think being a grown-up means you become a know-it-all, please don't become that person. That's not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Remain at the beginning. Become like a child. Die to yourself. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is what it means to find ourself in Christ. And so this is how we've begun. This is the milk of the gospel. If I could summarize everything that I've said for six weeks, this is where we need to rest. If you stick around with us here, and by us I mean here at Christ the King, for your whole life, this is the meal that we will forever eat. That's what I want to repeat for the rest of my ministry here, for decades and decades and decades, and we will never fully comprehend what we have that is ours in Christ at the beginning. This is our identity that we have in our baptism. So remember your baptism. This is solid food, enough for me, and for my part, we are going to feast upon the word of the cross for as long as I am ordained. And I, be, I mean that in in both senses, ordained by God and his providence to stand here in this pulpit and ordained to the work of priestly ministry. We don't need grown-up food. We need baby food. So in this sense, okay, so here's, this is kind of introduction. In this sense, I don't want us to ever grow up, but here is the turn that I want to make this morning. But all too often, we are babies because, as the Paul says, we live by the flesh. We live by the flesh, not by the Spirit, or else we are merely human, the Apostle Paul says. So, how can we begin to grow up? 
That's the question that I've been considering this week, not merely in our heads. So this isn't primarily a thinking question, although our minds expose our hearts. We have to think about our hearts. We can't just like get at our heart through our through our heart or something, like we have to think about it, okay? So it's not against thinking, but it's not about being a brain on a stick, okay? Our hearts get into our heads and our heads get into our hearts. So it's not just merely about thinking. It's not about doctrine, but it's also about our practice, what we do, how do we grow up? So my proposal this morning, which I will make here in a few minutes, is a toddler first step. Okay, I don't know if it's the first step. I'm going to try to make the case that is it is the first step of stepping into this reality in our practice, um, but it is a good first step. Okay, I have spent the majority of my week considering not first Corinthians, but every one of our other readings. Blessed, the psalmist says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. He goes on to say, I will praise you with an upright heart. This is what the psalmist says. When I learn your righteous rules, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That I might not sin against you. So reflecting on this delight, the psalmist delight, or else this Old Testament delight in the law of the Lord, here again, Sirach. If you choose, you can keep the commandments. Loyalty is doing the will of God. Set before you are fire and water. To whatever you choose, stretch out your hand. Before everyone are life and death. Whichever they choose will be given them. Will be given them. Okay, so that's reflecting in many ways on this choice. These ways that are before us. Moving our attention to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which begins in our uh, Gospel reading in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, which we heard just a few Sundays ago. Blessed, blessed, blessed. You guys are familiar with these. And then, uh, and in many ways actually, this is his description. I think this is Jesus' meditation on the psalmist's reflection, Psalm 119, which is another way to say the way of blessedness. How do we live a flourishing life? And then the Sermon on the Mount, which I know many of us are familiar with, and this is our last reading in the sermon this time around, okay? The Sermon on the Mount continues with the language of sharp contrast, which we've heard, which we've heard many times in our life. You can be salty, or you can be not salty. This is the contrast. You can be in the light, or you can be in the darkness. You can have one master, or you can have the other master, or else you can be wholehearted and inwardly righteous before the Lord, or you can be half-hearted. In other words, performing outwardly alone for people around you. These are the contrasts in the Sermon on the Mount. Fast forward 50 years after Jesus gave this sermon. Hear this from the Didache, or else the teaching of the Twelve. Two ways there are, one of life and one of death, and there is a great difference between the two ways. Now, the way of life is there. First, here's the way of life. First, love the God who made you. Secondly, your neighbor as yourself. 
I think I've heard that before. Have you guys heard that before? Law of life or law of sin and death. Touch the fire or touch the water. Salty or useless, light or dark, the way of life or the way of death. It's consistent. You see this? It's consistent from old into new. Jesus is consistently teaching what the prophetic tradition or else the law and the prophets are teaching. This is the teaching of Jesus in Old Testament wisdom and the wisdom tradition before Jesus' incarnation and the wisdom tradition of the early church fathers after Jesus' ascension to the Father. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. We should expect this. Do not think, Jesus says, and this is right before what we heard this morning in our New Testament or our Gospel reading. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, the story of God's redemption in the first five books of the Bible and then the rest of the Old Testament. So don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to complete them. The law will not pass away until all is accomplished, Jesus says. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So whether we're talking about Psalm 119 or Ben Sira or the early church fathers and even Jesus. I'm going to try to put my finger on something that you might be feeling, which I felt a lot this week. All of this talking about commandments and the law and my righteousness exceeding the most righteous person that I can imagine. This is what Jesus is saying. Or I won't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said. This all, to me, feels like, and it certainly sounds like, either I must be good enough, in the language that we've grown up in the church hearing, this is the language of works righteousness. i got to do it. i got to muster up my own will and my own strength and obey and obey and obey so I can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Is that how you hear this? That's how I hear a lot of it, okay? Maybe I'm alone here, okay? This is how I hear it. Or on the other side, we relax the commandments, as Jesus said, that we are tempted to do. Those don't really apply to me. That's Old Testament, or else that's in the, the future a thousand years, or else uh, I, I don't, I, uh, yeah, the, the law just makes me feel bad, so I'm, I'm going to stay away from it, okay? There's different ways in which we deal with this tension. How does the perfect law of liberty in Christ, this is the language of James, how does it apply to us, to you and to me in this room today? That's the question I've been asking. Now, I'm going to state my conviction here this morning, and I'm not going to fully prove it to you, okay? But here's my conviction, that the grace of God and the law of God are not, they're not enemies, they're friends. They go together. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Okay, so that's my baseline conviction. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, to complete 
the story of God's redemption in the law and the prophets, not to deny it. This is what he says. He came to write the law of Christ on our hearts so that we might truly declare with the psalmist, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. This is the hope of the prophets. Go read Jeremiah, that the law of the Lord would be written on our hearts so that we would be able to delight in God's law. This is the hope of the New Testament. This is what the Spirit is doing in our hearts by faith. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, for they shall be satisfied. So that's my baseline conviction. Or else, or else the law and the prophets are telling the same story. And it's fulfilled in Jesus. So I want to apply this to our real life what one of my professors calls the law in real life, okay? This is all very theoretical, and this is all uh, biblical theological. It seems to be on a page and not my real life. What does that, the law in real life, look like? So going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, how does Paul prove to us that we are merely human, or else I like to use the idea that we're toddlers in the faith. We're just beginning to learn how to walk. How does he... How does he, what does he point to? Verse 3, there is jealousy and strife among us. There is jealousy and strife among us. So, here's my proposal. The first baby step of Christian obedience is to pay attention to your anger. That's what I want to reflect on here this morning. Christian, pay attention to your anger. Why do I say that? At the beginning of every Sunday... I begin right here by summarizing the law or else the Ten Commandments, which is itself a summary of the whole law. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You hear that language from Matthew chapter 5? The law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill this. This is what Augustine called the double love of God and man. This is at the center of what it means to reflect on Christian obedience. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about love. That's what I want to do, okay? But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. The Ten Commandments are summarized with two hands, or else the two tablets of the law. Love God and love neighbor. So here's the first hand. Worship God alone. This is the first commandment. The second commandment. Don't worship idols. The third, don't misuse God's name. That's how, that's how uh, Randall Goodgame says it. I think that's, the be- that's a good way to say it, right? Don't misuse God's name. Don't bear the name of God, but truthfully. You need to bear his name truthfully. Four, gather with God's people and honor God and worship together on the Sabbath. This is the fourth commandment. The fifth commandment, so all of this is loving God, Honor your heavenly father even as you honor your earthly father and mother. Love God. So this is the first tablet of the law. The second hand, the second tablet, the second five, love your neighbor. What is the first commandment about loving? Loving. Let's just say that. What's the first commandment about loving? Do not kill. Do not murder. Why? Why is that the first commandment related to loving my neighbor? Genesis chapter 3, Adam did not worship God 
alone. He rejected God as king. His original sin was idolatry or else ignoring the word of God. He took, an, he took his own word or else the word of the serpent. And Eve was tempted by the devil. And John, in his gospel, he records Jesus calling the devil a murderer from the beginning. This is the language of John chapter 8. The devil is a murderer from the beginning. What do we see right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 4, in Adam and Eve's family, their first children, the first story outside of the garden after the fall. A brother kills another brother. Cain kills Abel. He murders his brother. To have no other gods before God, to love God, means not believing the murderer on one hand, and the first way that rejecting God is manifest in the lives of fallen people is we murder one another. This is what people do. We murder God in our hearts, and we murder one another in our hearts. This is, this is the two tablets of the law. Love God, love neighbor. You guys love this? You love this? <laughs> We're talking about murder this morning. Peter Lightheart says it like this. Each of the last five commandments is an extension of do not kill. So hear this. The sixth commandment. Do not assault the image of God by killing another human being. This is murder. Seven. Do not assault the image of God by violating marriage. Eight, by seizing another's property or else stealing, we violate the image of God. Nine, by defiling another man's reputation by lying, by bearing false witness, we murder them in our hearts. We covet, number ten, because we desire and we do not have, and that makes us envious murderers who attack God through his image. So in one way, we could say, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And the flip side of that is true. Don't, don't rage against God or don't rage against your neighbor. Don't, don't hate God and hate your neighbor. Don't murder God in your heart and murder your neighbor. This is the two tablets of the law. The first place that Jesus goes after talking about fulfilling the law and the prophets is he talks about murder. This is where he goes in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. I have fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. And then what does he say? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Don't, do not kill. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, I fool, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Most of us, and here's some good news, most of us will not murder someone in our life. I really hope that's true of us. I hope that all of you don't actually murder someone in your life. To murder, or else the deepest manifestation of our hatred for God on earth, this will change your life forever. J.K. Rowling is right. You will, you will fracture your soul. Murdering is not good for you, okay? So you guys get me. Don't do that, right? Don't do that. Don't murder. But most of us, by God's grace, will never do that. But 1,000 times a day, we will be angry or else tempted to do so. 
We will be tempted to rage against dozens of injustices done to us every day. And this this constant temptation, or else this daily inward and outward temptation to rage and to murder against our neighbor, this is shaping us. It's molding us. Pay attention to your anger. James chapter 3 and verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We murder them with our mouths. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Being angry, insulting another person made in God's image, not just the outward physical act of murder, Every time we give in to the temptation to anger, to take vengeance into our own hands, it leads to jealousy and strife. We are fleshly, we are babies, we are children. It tears us apart from the inside out, and it tears our relationships apart from the outside in. Both, all the time. Anger corrupts our ambition and turns into envy. We don't want to win anymore. We want to destroy our competition. This is what sports have become. We don't, we don't care about rooting for our team. We just want to put down the other team. This is, you see the twist. Anger corrupts our speaking the truth. Our tongue no longer speaks in love, but starts fires, or else it murders. It kills people around us with insults. Anger turns strong leaders into intimidators. This is what anger, or else a murderous heart, does. Anger curves inward into self-hatred. This is what Peter Lightheart says. Anger curves inward into self-hatred. So we're now murdering ourself cleverly disguising itself as humility. This is what murder does. It twists us. Anger twists us. The Didache, considering the way of death, puts it like this. Do not be prone to anger, for anger leads to murder. Do not be fanatical, not quarrelsome, not hot-tempered, For all these things beget murder. And all of this, the way of death, it begins with murder. This is the first admonition. Do not kill. Men that have no heart for the poor. This is how it ends. Men that have no heart for the poor are not concerned about the oppressed. Do not know their maker. They are murderers of children. Destroyers of God's image. This is the way of death that we are tempted to every moment of every day. We must fight against the devil, the evil one, the murderer from the beginning, and against our own fallen, rebellious, and murderous hearts. How can we do this? How do we combat a thousand temptations to raging inwardly that we face every day? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23 gives us some help. If you're at odds with someone, you're angry someone here in this room perhaps confess your anger before you come to this table confess it to the Lord 
Leave your offering at the altar and seek reconciliation so that you can truly pass the peace of Christ. We want to enact that here this morning. Don't seek vengeance. Turn the other cheek. With the psalmist, you are invited to cry out to God alone to bring about justice. Don't take it into your own hands. It's not up to you. Give it to the Lord. Be reconciled with one another horizontally as the evidence of the reconciliation that you've experienced with God vertically. This is what we're invited to do every time we gather together. The first person, the first person, it doesn't have to be fancy. The first person called righteous in Matthew's gospel in the New Testament is Joseph. Is Joseph. He is the righteous one. He is a just man, the husband of Mary. And before the angel speaks to Joseph, and this is Joseph living under the old covenant, before he is spoken to by an angel, he is called righteous in the New Testament. Why? Upon hearing that Mary, his betrothed, was pregnant, Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame, and he resolved to divorce her quietly. Rather than execute justice, the just man, or else the righteous man, showed mercy. He showed mercy. Joseph embodied in real life the wisdom of God on display from the beginning, which is to say the steadfast love of God, his character in always showing mercy. Mercy is greater than sacrifice, forgiveness, grace. In a small place, in a what seemed like a small decision, or else in this case for Joseph, it was a big life decision. Do I marry a girl who's pregnant? A small man and his behavior reflected God's nature in secret. God gives us his grace to obey in the small places, in the quiet places, to be righteous by faith. Joseph's wholeness of heart in that one quiet decision made way for his adopted son to be born. Jesus was the only man to be wholehearted in every decision in his life. Joseph was not, neither am I, neither are you. Jesus was the only perfect or else wholehearted one, the one who was complete, just like his heavenly father was complete. Peter Lightheart summarizes this way of life that points to Jesus like this. Jesus' entire life incarnates, thou shalt not kill. He doesn't assault God's image, but restores it. He doesn't wound, but heals. He doesn't take life, but gives it abundantly. He doesn't oppress, but frees. His words, even his harshest ones, are words of life. He uses the sword of his tongue to defend the weak and to call the wicked to repentance that leads to life. Jesus has cause to defend himself and to seek vengeance, yet he has, and he has legions of angels at his command, but instead, Jesus gives himself. He suffers in silent 
patience, loves and asks forgiveness for his executioners. He doesn't kill, but dies a victim of murder, and so gives life. And he calls us to follow, to renounce every form of murder, to be martyrs who give ourselves, and so become agents of abundant life. So, infants, babies, toddlers in Christ, pay attention to your anger and let it drive you to the foot of the throne of our merciful Father in Christ Jesus. Bring it to Him. Die to yourself and live and be found in Him and follow the way of life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.